Legacy project. Now, this I hope I'm, it's going to come out um, soon at some point. Uh, but this is a, a project funded by the Wellcome Trust um, that I'm carrying out at the moment, um, with, in which I look at the role of, kind of healthcare professionals, doctors, um, in Japan's involvement in international cooperation in the Cold War context. So during the Cold War and then in the Cold War context. So um, yeah, so that's that's the, that's the story. And um, somehow um, I talked to um, Katya this summer, and um, I was interested in this um, uh, this history of the IUD. And in fact, um, our meeting in, in Japan in the summer kind of prompted prompted me to actually look into a little bit deeper. So I'm going to talk about about this um, uh, now, and I hope I get some feedback from. Okay, um, so today the IUD um, or intrauterine device is widely used across uh, the world. In Japan, however, as you can see, um, my, my rudimentary kind of figures, um, it's not so popular. So there are numerous reasons for the low popularity of the IUD, but I suggest today that the history played a role in the phenomenon. And specifically, the fact that over the post-war period, the government was really slow to respond to uh, or approve the uh, production of the IUD might have been the um, might one factor contributing to the low prevalence of the contraceptive among people in Japan. Now, the Japanese government was indeed slow to adopt, um, adopt the IUD. It took the government until 1974 to approve the production and commercial distri distribution of uh, the IUD, although the contraceptive um, itself existed since the early 20th century. Now, this is striking, actually, uh, in the following three ways. So the first one um, is that um, it was this Japanese um, physician um, called Ota Tenbei who is credited to be one of the inventors of intrauterine um, contraceptive device. And because of Ota, a precursor of the device itself existed. Well, it was available in Japan since the um, early 1930s. But it took the government over 40 years to recognize uh, it was a legitimate form of birth control. Now, second. Um, the Japanese government in the early post-war period was really keen to popularize um, birth control due to anxieties over population growth, and even implemented a state-endorsed birth control uh, sorry state birth control policy in 1951, but overlooked the IUD. Now, <clears throat> in, in, in the state birth control campaign. And finally, over the 1960s, the governments in neighboring societies of East Asia, namely People's Republic of China, Taiwan, and South Korea, really enthusiastically embraced the IUD, um, regarding it as an effective tool within their birth control programs. But the Japanese government was, again, slow to respond to this move in within East Asia. So why? did it, this is my question right, today, so why did it take so long for the Japanese government to approve the IUD? Now the aim of the uh, presentation today is to explain the government's hesitant attitude to the IUD over the early post-war period. Um, I argue firstly that um, the reluctance 
of uh, the Japanese government to approve the IUD owed much to the internal politics involving elite doctors, as doctors were one of the most important stakeholders we exerted power or influence over the trajectory of government's public health and population policies that significantly included birth control policy. But at the same time, I also contend that we need to really go beyond the national framework. Even if the subject matter covered here is strictly a domestic policy, because the process of making the state birth control policy in Japan during the post-war period it really intimately crossed with negotiations over population control unfolding um, uh, kind of measures right, and, and, uh, unfolding transnationally during the period in the context of the Cold War. But why study birth control? Right? Why is it relevant for scholars of Japanese history, culture and society? Now, in response to this question, I'd like to point out that, um, well, firstly, uh, this now established concept of biopower, right, um, advanced by Michel Foucault originally. Now, Foucault contends that modern notions of um, sexuality really exhort, um, exhort power to ex exercise social control at the level of both the body and the population. And birth control certainly falls into the realm of sexuality and also the examination of, of birth control is an effective way with which to understand uh, how social control has been applied in the context of Japanese society and, and, and state. Now, on, more, more, on a more micro level, as Samuel Coleman has pointed out, the area of contraception offers a critical arena for reassessing assumptions about um, contemporary family dynamics in Japan. I'm, I'm just quoting him now. So a study uh, of how men and women in Japan opt for condoms instead of the IUD, for example, can show important social factors such as gender norms right, that participate in dynamics affecting family. Now finally, um, recent one, Tian Nogren, who has tackled the question of why abortion became dominant in Japan as opposed to um, the oral contraceptive pill, suggests that the study of birth control points to the centrality of negotiations taking place among what Nogren called interest groups right, um, in the trajectory of birth control policy and practice. Now, my presentation today draws on these studies in particular, Nogren's perspective on interest groups when I you know, where that's, that's, that's um, relevant when I examine how elite medical doctors exerted power of the decision-making process um, now within the government. But my presentation today also departs from Nogren and other studies in, the, in three um, ways. Now, firstly, um, in contrast to Nogren's work that surveyed various interest groups, my primary focus here is um, the medical doctors who acted as scientific policy um, okay, advisors to the government's birth control campaign. Now, the perspective is informed by a particular approach in the field of science and um, technology studies called SDS, right? such as the one presented by Sheila Jasanoff, who has pointed out the kind of co-constitutive relationship between the policy-making process and the making of science by examining the role uh, that the um, science advisors in the, uh, in the, in the government policy made. 
And here I argue that IUD or the case study involving the IUD most vividly illustrates the aspect of doctors, Japanese doctors, right, um, as medical and scientific policy advisors. For one, the IUD, like the pill, was defined as a new medical contraceptive that required doctors' expertise and involvement for the introduction of, of it to the public. Right? But compared to a pill, which is easy to administer so long as well, so long as uh, a woman um, uh, in, uh, gained access via prescription, so the, so the point here is that the access was, you know, for, for the pill, the access, how do you gain access? Um, you know, the, the que this question actually involved doctors. But for, for the IUD, the early model at least um, required more involvement from the doctors all the way through, even to the point of administration. So this aspect of the IUD made it a more exclusive contraceptive. So on the one hand, this um, ensured doctors' involvement in the process of policy making, but on the other, this kind of managed to chase away um, some of the birth control activists who resorted to simpler contraceptives such as condoms, which would not necessitate medical inter intervention at least as much, not as much. Right? But this exclusive exclusivity makes the IUD a perfect case study for the role of medical scientists as policy advisors. So with a case study today um, involving IUD, my presentation highlights the critical role that Japanese medical doctors played in the state birth control policy. So I, I'm hoping that this is a first step to a more kind of rigorous examination of the co-production between science making and policy making participated in the in the post-war uh, birth control policy politics in Japan. Now secondly, sorry, so, so sorry I should have actually gone through this. Right, so by focusing on the IUD, I also depart from a dominant narrative of the history of birth control in post-war Japan that has so far focused much on the do, um, kind of predominance of abortion and to some extent condoms and the lack of interest in the contraceptive pill. Now, I argue um, that all are relevant research topics because they were, or in a way, uniquely Japanese phenomena, um, in that these phenomena seem to happen only in Japan in comparison to other kind of Western industrial um, countries, which, by the way, um, had been a, a kind of a dominant focus right, in these studies. Um, but these phenomena were also dramatic. And so studying only these dramatic phenomena um, could obscure some important themes that might have been central to the history of birth control in general, but have been overlooked precisely because of the focus only on visible and dramatic phenomena. So by examining the IUD, the medical contraceptive that was less popular throughout the post-war period, I seek to not only add layer or another layer um, to the existing history, but also to engage with issues that one can mostly, kind of most vividly see um, by contextualizing this, this less dramatic contraceptive technology. Now, here, transnationalism is one such important theme that emerges from the historical study of the IUD. So finally, I consider the meaning of Japanese nationhood um, by stressing the significant role that transnational elements um, played in the national policy. 
Now, discussing transnationalism, um, okay, so Briggs, McCormick, and Way have highlighted the benefit transnationalism as a category of historical analysis by presenting it as analogous to the concept of gender. So now my analysis of the Japanese interactions with the transnational population control adopts this notion of transnationalism. That is, by kind of identifying and examining transnational elements within the national policy, I aim to illuminate how Japan as a nation was not a neat, self-contained category, but was, um, as I call Briggs um, um, at all, uh, shot through with contradiction. So with this framework, I hope to illustrate how medical doctors acting as policy advisors facilitated the process whereby the transnational became a constitutive element that consolidated deployments that shaped the nation in Japan. So with that in mind, so um, I'm going to first uh, kind of give you a, a kind of a survey history of the pre-war uh, period involving the IUD, where this is a background kind of uh, section. Then move on to the post-war birth control policy campaign and um, examine why uh, the IUD was overlooked within the campaign. And then I, I'll go on to uh, examine what was called the ring dispute, the ringuronso, um, to highlight the role of doctors. Uh, uh, and, and, and kind of highlight the scientific debate that was going on uh, in that uh, kind of uh, that, that affected the policy. Then moving on to the 60s, um, which I regard as a moment of change in terms of um, kind of uh, government's reaction or, or, or view towards um, the IUD, and um, look at the domestic and the transnational kind of context. So that's what I'm going to do today. So now to start with the pre-war. Period. So the contraceptive method relying on the device inserted into the uterine began to appear in the early 20th century. But the popular history really identifies this Berlin-based gynecologist Ernst Grafenberg on the, on the screen here um, as a pioneer of the modern intrauterine contraceptive device. Now, in 1930, Greifenberg introduced an intrauterine contraceptive method using a spiral coil of silver ring, and he called it the Greifenberg ring. And this became known as a prototype of modern IUD. At the same time, now, popular history um, also identifies Japanese medical researcher and clinician Ota Tende to be yet another early in inventor of the um, intrauterine device. Now, Ota Tende was born, uh, so here, that's him. Um, Ota Tende was born into a medical family specializing in gynecology um, for generations. Now, according to Ota's retrospective account, and I quote, uh, quote, quote him now, um, he was interested in neither career nor money and did not need to care about either of them. So he decided to go into the path no one had traded before and particularly specializing something that people tend to avoid and started to study birth control then. It's a slightly uh, kind of um, unorthodox uh, here. And over the 1920s, um, Oda had been grappling with intrauterine contraceptive methods because he knew about this traditional tale of East Asia that told a cow would not get pregnant um, if a ball made of gold was inserted 
into its uterus. Now, just at the time in 1931, um, he learned about uh, the Grafenberg ring right, and decided to develop his own based on uh, this Grafenberg ring. Now, he, he conducted a small-scale trial involving his uh, female relatives and acquaintances and published the result in 1932. Now, Oda called his device Ota Ring. So it's based on, uh, or kind of um, after the uh, tradition created by Grafenberg. So it was this 1932 report um, of this early type of Ota Ring that brought international fame to Ota in later years. In the 1930s, however, the intrauterine device did not widely spread in Japan. Now, re the reasons for the um, this, this limited usage or limited reach of the contraceptive really uh, were varied, but the negative views um, really um, that prevailed uh, were on birth control in general that prevailed um, among the government um, and within the government and among elites. Uh, kind of elite doctors um, was a crucial factor. Now, firstly, the government was skeptical of the intrauterine device precisely because it associated the contraceptive with the popular birth control, uh, a movement that the government already uh, thought was uh, suspect. Now, the birth control activism gained popularity in the 1920s, but from the onset, the government was suspicious of the movement, precisely because many uh, activists were also sympathizers of socialism. And as you know, uh, this is an ideology that increasingly became um, subject to government control during the period. So among doctors to start with, um, Oda himself, uh, sorry, yeah. Um, Ota himself organized his birth control initiatives, um, often uh, kind of um, by collaborating with um, kind of labor um, movement people. Um, also, Yamamoto Senji, uh, on the picture on the screen here, um, he was working uh, for a, the uh, prestigious department of medicine at Tokyo Imperial University and Doshisha University. He became drawn into labor movement through his birth control activism. And there are others as well, uh, which I'm not um, going to kind of, um, not going to talk because of the time. Now, over the 1920s, the government began to crack down on activities of these doctor activists by claiming that they were inculcating indecent ideas in, public health, in, in the public. So after the government issued the Peace and Preservation Law on, on the 12th of March in 20, 1925, Yamamoto, for instance, um, was um, uh, kind of accused to have agitated the socialist students at Kyoto and Doshisha universities um, who were arrested under law. And as a result, he had to, in fact, resign his position at, at Doshisha. And his speech often was kind of interrupted by the government um, at the, on the site. Right? Um, so in this political climate, the research on contraceptives in general was limited, let alone the new medical contraceptive of Otari, right? Which, uh, whose efficacy was not yet established. Now, in addition to, this gov to the government control, um, elite doctors specializing in reproduction were also reluctant to endorse Otaring. And then that was because um, of their understanding of eugenics. 
Now, during the period Nagai Hisomu uh, on the screen here, <clears throat> and Koya Yoshio, I'm going to talk about him later, these were um, leaders of reproductive medicine in pre-war Japan. Uh, they were also enthusiastic kind of promoters of um, eugenics and racial hygiene. Now, these doctors really mistrusted the intrauterine device, um, or for the matter, birth control um, uh, contraceptives in general, because they believed um, it was a, a birth control method, and so it would promote what they called reverse selection. Sorry. And uh, so reverse selection was this idea that um, the expansion of the groups with inferior traits, huryo right, trait, um, against the contraction of the groups with superior traits, yuryo. And these doctors claim that birth control, if unchecked, this is really important, would be practiced chiefly by the people with superior traits who should be producing offspring. So as a result, so they further argued reverse selection would occur and then the quality of Japanese population would degenerate. Now based on the argument from the 1920s, um, these doctors lobbied for the government control over over birth control. And partly as a consequence of their action, uh, in 1930, um, the government issued a regulation aimed to limit the distribution of uh, harmful contraceptives, yugai, uh, among the public. In 1936, uh, IUD uh, was defined as one of those yugai, harmful contraceptives. Um, and within this regulation, um, the access to ordering became confined in the field of clinical research. Now this, of course, paradoxically, could have offered an opportunity for doctors wishing to popularize ordering, right? because the, the idea is that these doctors, um, or in fact, including Oda himself, they could recommend um, the, the, the contraceptive device to women without government intervention, so long as they, in fact, use clinical trial as, a, um, as an excuse for their action, right? uh, which some of them actually did. But after 1937, um, this tactic itself became unreliable as the government declaring the war against China adopted a pronatalist policy in order to secure human resource. Jinteki right? Shigen was the catch-off rate. Now finally in 1941, uh, the cabinet decided to adopt a summary of point on the establishment of population policy and item four of the summary recommended the banning of art artificial contraceptive methods and induced abortion. Now, from then onwards, as Ota himself, um, in fact, admitted, the, the research on the ring um, was, all, was interrupted. The um, eugenicist doctors, so eugenicist um, doctors really campaigned to quash the, the birth control movements was facilitated by the political circumstance of imperial Japan that necessitated expansion of um, high quality population. So, and as a consequence, the, the government's pronatalist policy made it increasingly difficult for kind of proponents of birth controls to di di distribute contraceptives, right? which, of course, included um, Ota's intrauterine device. So that, that, that's what was happening during the kind of um, pre-war period and, and wartime. Now, after the war, however, um, the government really made a 180-degree change in population policy. 
That meant the Japanese government became the first in the world that adopted the popularization of birth control as a national project. So as the um, um, kind of critical moment, the critical moment really came in um, on the 26th of October in 1951, when the cabinets decided to popularize birth control and make it a national project. And based on this decision in 1952, uh, the 1948 uh, eugenic protection law was amended in order to allow existing eugenic marriage consultation clinics to promote birth control. I'm going to talk about this, um, this law later. Um, the government was uh, also ordered local authorities to train community-based so-called uh, birth control field instructors. Um, and uh, birth control field instructors would teach everyday men and women um, about the idea of birth control and distribute contraceptives at, at a wholesale price. So, <coughs> excuse me. So this radical term in the government's attitude to birth control was um, really derived mainly from two circumstances. So the first, that emerged after, immediately after the war. So the first was um, a population growth, and the other was rising abortion rates. So in terms of population growth, um, as the figures on the, uh, the screen show, um, this go the government noticed a clear trend in population growth as soon as they, um, they, they started to you know, they, they resume census collecting after 45. Now, as a result, um, there was a surge in, in public debates on what was characterized as overpopulation. Now, the government was also concerned um, because um, uh, because so, so because they recognized that rapid popula uh, population expansion was an urgent matter precisely because it was deemed to exacerbate existing social problems such as food and housing shortage, unemployment, epidemics, and vagrancy. Now, importantly, this government concern was also shared by um, some officers serving the allied occupation of Japan. Right? As, as you know, uh, Japan was under um, occupation during this period. <clears throat> so these, peop these officers um, thought that um, this rapid population growth could um, preclude Japan's reindustrialization and, and, as an extension, national independence. So as Deborah Oakley, um, she's explained, um, the anxiety over population growth that prevailed within the occupation's um, general headquarters uh, was an important backdrop behind uh, Japanese government's birth control campaign. Although officially, uh, it's important to note that Supreme Commander for Allied um, Powers maintained a neutralist stance on this matter. Now the second circumstance um, was the rise in abortion figures after the issuing of the eugenic uh, protection law in 1948. Uh, and, and this became a trigger for the government's endorsement of birth control. So um, for those of you know, who don't know the eugenic protection law, um, this law was aimed to, and I quote, um, prevent the birth of inferior offspring from the eugenic point of view and to protect the health and life of mothers. So this uh, was a law uh, revised from the national uh, eugenic law uh, passed uh, before the end of the war in 1940, so in the, in the context of total war. 
Now, it was born out of the anxiety shared prevalently among the, um, it means uh, 1948 law. Uh, so anxiety among policy intellectuals over street children, uh, mixed race children, uh, street girls called pampan, and others symbolizing promiscuity and social chaos of the immediate post-war period. So the advocates to eugenics con contended that these groups would lower the population quality, um, the so-called code for government's control. Now, once enacted, uh, this eugenic protection law had an unintended consequence um, of, um, in fact, encouraging induced abortion. In particular, uh, the amendment in activities. And, and he was a, also a noted medical researcher, uh, really, who was central to the state birth control campaign during this period. Now, Koya believed that people were using abortion as a means of, mean, uh, of birth control, and so feared that this rather, rather haphazard practice of birth control might lead to reverse selection, like I explained earlier, precisely because it was an unchecked practice throughout. And so Koya thought that this reverse selection <coughs> me, could be avoided by checked birth control initiatives that would be carefully planned and guided by the authorities. So Koya arranged a meeting with um, the Minister of Health and Welfare back then, um, Hashimoto Ryugoro, and persuaded Hashimoto to accept his proposal to replace abortion with guided birth control. And then he also sat um, in the Japanese birth control, uh, sorry, the Japanese Population Problem Council, uh, which was established uh, in the cabinet in 1949. And in fact, and then uh, became this team that drafted a, a proposal um, for birth control. And this proposal, in fact, became the basis for this government's recommendation of birth control in 1951. So the campaign really organized by, by Koya, or eugenicist Koya, and his supporters to replace abortion um, with contraception mobilized the government, really, to endorse birth control. 
Now, <clears throat> the change in the, um, the political climate really provided an opportunity for the birth control advocates to resume their activities. So uh, already in 19, uh, November, in 19, no, November of 1945, Kato Shizue, uh, the center on the screen here, um, uh, she, so she's Kato, she was um, a Japanese confidant, confidant, uh, confidant of um, American birth control activist, um, Margaret Sanger, and pretty much the leading figure um, in the birth control movement since the 1920s, right? And she started already um, a campaign in, in November 1945. So pretty much after, after, the, um, after the surrender, and demanded the spread of birth control for the emancipation of women, and did, uh, decided to advance her cause via electri elective politics. So he, she also became a politician there, one of the first um, female um, uh, members of, of uh, diet. Now, and in Tokyo, Ota himself organized the Birth Control Alliance in the same month. Um, and extended his clinic to host the birth control consultation clinic. And again, there are others who were um, who, who were quite active in that. Um, so this post-war birth control movement um, really, uh, to an extent, worked in favor of doctors wishing to develop intrauterine devices and promote them to the public. So Ota, for instance, resumed the production of this, his golden intrauterine device in Tokyo from 1948 and um, started to collect data. And also Ota Ring garnered institutional support from organizations such as this influential Japan uh, Industry, Industry Council and the Japan Birth Control Information. And then in parallel, former collaborators of Koya um, developed Ota Ring's copy and then kind of patented it with the name Yusei Ring and made it a commercially viable product. So in the early post-war period, this intrauterine contraceptive devices were developed and promoted in the domain where private and non-governmental birth control campaign really crossed with um, clinical practices. But in contrast, within the state birth control or state-endorsed birth control campaign, um, the, this device, intrauterine device, was marginalized, often marginalized. And they were chiefly two reasons here for the phenomenon. And the first was this new trend uh, in the state birth control policy. And then the second point was um, neglect in the pilot project. I'm going to explain that now. So the first one. About the first point, already in, uh, in 18, um, 1948, in August, in response to the policy discussion on population growth, the government issued the pharmaceutical law, right, which nullified the pre-war regulation banning the sales of medicines and tools used for contraceptive purposes. And based on this law, throughout uh, May 1948, uh, nine, um, the Ministry of um, well, Health and Welfare issued a series of approvals um, for, a, for the sales of a total of 26 contraceptive medicines. Now, these included um, the contraceptive uh, tablets, such as Sampoon of Azai Pharmaceutical Company, which exists now, right, even now, uh, 
that's a that's a kind of again the the resolution is not good, but this is an ad um, advertising uh, sampoon here. Now. So, tw but within this, uh, so among this 26 uh, contraceptive medicines, authoring was excluded. So di he didn't get, didn't get uh, official approval, despite author's um, kind of uh, enthusiastic campaign and application. And but on top of that, to make it worse, the ministry um, even notified um, to uh, to the prefectural mayors that the intrauterine device would not be approved because it was a harmful contraceptive. Now, because of this government action, um, part, uh, the use of this device continued to be limited to clinical trial. So, as a state birth control initiative was run by local health officials that were accountable to both the prefecture and national level policies, the move away from this uh, the intrauterine device in the bureaucracy meant that the contraceptive was often ignored within the state birth control initiative. Now, moving on to the second um, kind of reason, absence in the pilot project. Um, already, the, this, you know, the, this absence in the pilot project uh, could explain the, this um, contraceptive's low visibility in the state campaign. Now, Throughout most of the 1950s, um, and now here Koya again comes into, into play and very important. So Koya I mean, uh, organized a series of pilot studies, partly initially in order to uh, really justify his birth control campaign, but this became, his, his studies became a model for the birth control um, uh, program um, endorsed by the state. So for his studies, Koya um, use these um, varying, you know, wide range of contraceptive methods you can see on the screen, but have in excluded um, auto ring or any other intrauterine device. Right. Now, as mentioned, Koya's uh, pilot project played a, a decisive role in the in the content of the state uh, endorsed birth con control campaign in earlier days. Um, so, the um, this. Uh, as in the uh, as in the pilot project, in the actual project as well, uh, in the actual program, the intrauterine device was really hard to see, unless um, doctors in charge were really enthusiastic with recommending recommending it to women. Now, Koya was, like I said, one of the um, elite medical researchers who played a decisive role in the state. Um, campaign, birth control campaign. So if we examine Koya, we can see how medics as scientific policy um, policy advisors interacted with the state policy. So with regard to Koya, he ended up marginalizing the intrauterine device by two interlinked means. The first was um, by uh, directly negotiating with policymakers over the birth control policy. And also, the second is by really excluding, excluding the device in his pilot studies, and then shaped the state-endorsed um, uh, uh, birth control initiatives. But Koya was not alone in this game of marginalizing the, uh, the device out of the public domain. And this becomes clear if we kind of consider how other doctors interacted with state policy using their scientific ex expertise. 
So I'm going to spend a little bit of time now to examine exactly that. Now, already from the onset, author conducted clinical trials and communicated the results to his um, colleagues in order to, well, probably establish the contraceptive efficacy, um, which was quite important uh, for the kind of official, for, for, for Koya, um, sorry, for Ota, it was really important um, to gain kind of approval, uh, official approval. Right? Um, so he kept doing that in the post-war period. And the earliest scientific activity in the post-war period was his presentation uh, in November 1949 in uh, Takarazuka. And um, this became uh, a publication, as, as, you know, as, as many scientific activities go, uh, in uh, progress in obstetric gynecology in 1950. Now, this in seemingly innocuous report led to a series of academic debates that Koya retrospectively called the Ring Dispute, Ringuronso, unfolded in the 1950s. Now, the Ring Dispute, I'm not sure if this is a, 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 a kind of relevant, this is a um, good translation, but in, in any case, the Ring Ringuronso is Japanese, right? was held among doctors specialized in obstetric gynecology and pediatrics and between the proponents of the intrauterine device consisting largely of clinicians and the opponents who were mostly elite academic doctors. Now, the highlight in the, um, <clears throat> in the succession of debates was the one between Ota and Ando Takuichi, which took place in Tokyo. Uh, in, on the 31st of January in 1952. Now, Ando here um, was a, uh, the doyen, really the doyen of obstetric gynecology in Japan. And he was at this, um, at the prestigious Keio University Medical School. And so, you know, really, really leader in the field. Now, in the meeting where contraceptive methods were listed as a theme, Ando then presented the opposing side and harshly criticized Koya, um, oh, oh, sorry, Ota Ring in the presence of Ota. Now, Ando claimed that, um, oops, sorry. So, so he, he claimed that um, an intrauterine contraceptive method um, was aimed to, well, was designed to present contraception in utero. Uh, and it could accompany health risk. So that was his, his idea, right? his big theme, health risk. And, and plus, it could be easily avoided by other simpler and safer methods um, available, already available to the public. So why bother? Why bother introducing a new one when, they, when there are other, other ones? Right? To rebut, Ota, in fact, insulted Ando uh, for being too theoretical and demanded that Ando should provide data, right? And which, in fact, Ota and other supporters of, in, of intrauterine methods, really, they duly prepared for the meeting. So uh, clearly Ando was insulted as well. Uh, you can actually see from the, uh, from the source. <laughs> Again, you know, if you look at the, the status, right, the social status between the two, um, it becomes clear that he was really offended by that, by, by Ota's comment. Now, okay, so, and after a long discussion, uh, the meeting really did not reach consensus. 
So the proponents provided data that largely illustrated the efficacy of the device, and the opponents stressed the health risk by highlighting bleeding and expulsion cases with the data presented by the opponents, by the, by the proponents, by their proponents, or the proponents of the IUD. Now, scientific debate of this kind would have an impact on the, on the government decision, especially given um, OTA was really tirelessly lobbying to get the government to approve the device. So how did the government react to this debate? As the, um, uh, the, the arguments really presented by both sides were plausible. And so one, one is highlighting health risk, and then the other was highlighting the efficacy. So the question of which argument the government would adopt for its, its decision really, in the end, boiled down to, um, to issues such as um, kind of uh, whose argument um, uh, health bureaucrats deemed more kind of trustworthy, and what factors they considered more important. So in the end, the government uh, during the period sided with the opponents. Oh, excuse me. Um, for instance, when the Ministry of Health and Welfare declined Ota's application for the ring, for his ring, um, in in the in the fifties after the um, after the the debate, this highlight debate, right, the government provided three reasons, which according to Ota were a copy of the theories advanced by one of the vocal opponents. Um, Sawazaki Chiaki. Now, Sawazaki was an obstetric, obstetric gynecologist specialist who uh, had been affiliated with, well, with uh, uh, the Department of Medicine at the Tokyo University of Tokyo. This is the top of the cream institution, right? Um, when, when you look at um, medicine, so this the ring dispute and the government's reaction to the scientific debate suggests that. Um, the government's reservation to the intrauterine device um, was really informed by less, uh, less by scientific validity than by really other factors. And here, uh, the position of the doctors in a larger political context comes into play. Now, specifically in the in the case of uh, this the ring dispute, the, the division between pro and anti factions represented really a rift, the rift in the accessibility to political power embodied by the central government. Now, as ex, as I explained um, earlier, with the case of Koya, elite academic doctors, um, who was which was the largest constituent in this um, debate. Um, uh, and the, uh, kind of representing the opposing side, they participated in the government's decision-making process more so um, than many of the proponents who were rank-and-file clinicians or maverick doctors such as Ota. In addition, um, physical proximity um, to the central government that the elite doctors enjoyed in comparison to many proponents such as Yagi Hideo um, who lived in, who lived remotely from the capital, might have consolidated political power of the opponents even further. So basically, this, this socio-political position of the participants <coughs> of the dispute really influenced the government um, opinion on the intrauterine device. 
And in addition, a system of government consultation that privileged the view of elite academic doctors also determined the government's um, kind of position on the matter. So this. So the system consolidated early doctors' influence in the government's um, decision-making process, and this was another, or could be another factor um, that account for the um, low profile of the intrauterine device in the state birth control campaign. Now, but um, in 1974, the government revised its view and gave an official approval to the intrauterine device. Now, in that year, um, the, the Ministry of Health and Welfare permitted the production of altering and using as medical contraceptives. The, the news um, here was published in, the, in, in one of the medi medical journals and show the sketches of using and um, alterings there. Now, why did the government so far so reluctant suddenly give the green light to the intrauterine device in 1974? Now, to answer, I argue that the official approval did not happen overnight, but the government's interest in the contraceptive gradually grew over the 60s. And also, the shifting attitude within the government was shaped both domestic and transnational context. I'm going to explain that now. Now, in terms of co domestic um, context, as you can see, um, on, the, on the screen here, um, by the late 1960s, quite a sizable number of women had been actually um, using the intrauterine device through the route of clinical research. Now, in addition to the domestic um, context, equally significant was the transnational context in the 1960s that witnessed the rise of the movement aimed to curtail population expansion in those regions rendered third world by means of fertility reduction. Now, the transnational population control movement was spurred by the emerging theory of socioeconomic, um, socioeconomic development that rendered overpopulation coterminous to poverty, and by the Cold War um, geopolitics in which the U.S. came to consider development aid to be a tool of what historian Christina Klein called the global imaginary of containment. So the U.S. was a major uh, player in this in this game, and um, from the mid 1960s, the U.S. government assigned a large amount um, of budget to family planning initiatives in the third world, promoted as development aid. Now, the new trend in the U.S., or by the U.S. government, um, <clears throat> has given a spur to the global transfer of the IUD. Sorry. So the Population Council, a New York-based philanthropic organization endowing uh, research on the IUD since the 19th, uh, 1950s, began to um, kind of aggressively promote uh, lipis loop and I can't pronounce this one, uh, Margulies Spiral, uh, to the Third World Family Planning Initiatives by collaborating with international family planning organizations, such as the International Planned Parenthood Federation. Now, consequently, the IUD became one of the most common methods um, deployed in the transnational population control um, initiatives. And within Asia, um, South Korea and Taiwan became the most enthusiastic 
in, in the world almost in using the IUD in their own government-led family planning initiatives. So the rapid circulation of this IUD globally, and particularly in Japan's neighboring countries, really swayed the attitude of the bureaucrats um, to the extent that they began to consider approving the IUD as a possibility. Uh, you can see on the screen from the mid-1960s, the government made formal inquiries to professional medical societies and asking whether or not the IUD was indeed a safe method. Um, that could be recommended to the public. So the international trend, in a way, exhorted the government to consider a revision of its view on the contraceptive device. But what was really truly significant about the transnational uh, population control movement for the story I would like to tell today um, is that the movement was far from uh, kind of something foreign um, imposed, sorry, imposed, oh, sorry, 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 imposed on, uh, uh, or affecting or imposed on the Japanese trend, but it was a uh, constitutive element of changes in the domestic birth control policy in Japan. And the significant factor really allowing this co-constitutive relationship between the transnational movement and the domestic um, policy was the Japanese um, doctors' uh, active engagement with the transnational movement. But here's an interesting story, is that initially, Japanese doctors who participated in the transnational dialogue over the IUD were not necessarily top doctors. Who had been, uh, you know, who had been influential in in the government policy or government policy making arena. The most significant uh, Japanese players in the development of the IUD, from the international perspective, were not Ando or Sawazaki or any other elite Japanese doctors in the field of obstetric gynecology, but Ota and a doctor in rural Iwate Prefecture uh, called Ishihama Atsumi. Now, Ishihama Atsumi was a medical researcher working for uh, the medical school of provincial Iwate University. Like Ota, Ishihama's start of career was quite, well, not quite, but humble compared to other top uh, uh, medics. Although he was a graduate of one of the prestigious imperial universities, uh, it, was not Kyushu, it was Kyushu and not Tokyo. Right? But Ishihama's peripheral position, in a way, helped him to develop his career with the study of Ota Ring. Uh, Ishihama first learned about the intrauterine uh, device and considered, it, considered to recommend it to women when he spent his days inducing abortion uh, among female repatriates in Nagasaki, which he described in detail, and that really made me weep. Um, in provincial Iwate University, um, he had to endure deficient research budget, and this encouraged him to conduct a clinical trial of Ota Ring, which could be done fairly inexpensively. So Ishihama conducted Ota uh, as soon as he moved to, to Iwate and conducted a clinical trial with initially 600 local women and did a physiological examination. And really, finally, by chance, Ishihama published, um, oh, sorry, published a, uh, a, a result both in English and in Japanese, and the English version in Yokohama Journal of Medicine eventually reached um, Alan Guttmacher, American guy, um, at, at the Population Council. 
And uh, this Guttmacher uh, was the driving force behind the global promotion of the IUD. Now, Guttmacher um, invited Ishihama to the first um, international conference on the IUD in New York that took place in New York in 1962, uh, which significantly coined the term IUD. So it was a very important com uh, conference here. And also, due to Ishi um, Ishi Ishi Ishihama's presentation, Otaring became recognized as a viable contraceptive method. So um, at this international, at the International Family Planning Conference uh, that took place in Chile in 1967, Guttmacher introduced Ota Ring to, to the public and even called Ota father of the IUD. Now, this international recognition of Ishihama and Japanese Ota Ring was important because this eventually shifted dynamics within the, the group of elite doctors accountable to the government policy on the IUD. Now, with regard to Ishihama, um, he was the only Japanese doctor invited to speak at the, at the first conference ever on the IUD. And um, over the 60s, he quickly established himself um, in this international arena. Now, this interna international exposure or reputation was his really ticket to, um, to the elite doctor's clique. So as you can see on the screen, um, after the debut, his debut in 1962, international debut, right? he was often invited by specialist societies to speak on the IUD. Now, eventually, Ishihama's um, presence um, changed the dynamics within the body of elite medical researchers, really tilting the opinion uh, slightly too uh, in favor of um, device, the device. But of course, Ishihama alone couldn't have swayed his, his colleagues' opinion. For that, are you I argue that uh, these elite doctors themselves began to revise their, their, their conservative views on the IUD, precisely because some of them uh, were participants of the transnational movement. And this, was, this factor was important. Now, for instance, Koya remained uh, indifferent to the IUD throughout the 50s, but during the period, um, uh, like Ishihama, he was also, uh, he made himself a, a kind of key player in the field of international research on family planning. So as an extension, in the, 60, in the middle of the 60s, Koya revised his view on the IUD when the contraceptive became a boom in the transnational population control campaign. Now, the direct trigger, trigger according to Koya, came from the lecture Guttmacher de uh, delivered in Japan uh, in 1955, uh, sorry, 65, on his return from the meeting of the IPPF West uh, Pacific region held in South Korea in that year. So in the lecture uh, for which Koya chaired, Gutmacher criticized the Japanese government's neglect of the IUD. And after the event, um, Koya became a driving force for the government's approval of the IUD. Now, Koya, as I said, as I repeat, was a prominent figure on which the Ministry uh, of Health and Welfare relied on, relied on the matter of birth control. So his support for the IUD was crucial for the government's decision uh, to approve the IUD in 1974. So to conclude, um, 
I examine the, the post-war history of birth control by focusing on the IUD and in particular by engaging with the question of why um, it took so long the government took, it took so long for the government to approve the IUD. <clears throat> in order to respond to the question I have um, uh, examined how medical doctors participated in the process of making uh, a state birth control policy with a specific focus on their role as scientific policy advisors. Now, I've shown that doctors played a significant um, uh, role in the government's decision-making process, precisely because of the assumption that prevailed in the policy-making domain that they would bring an insight um, into, into the matter based on their scientific expertise. But the case um, of the post-war ring dispute showed that the proximity to political political power, power um, in kind of or more than or, or in, a, in a way alongside the scientific rigor was a critical factor characterizing the um, doctor's role as science policy advisors. So although the support um, of this uh, activist doctor uh, or clinician or, or you know there, there was there was there was a doc, uh, kind of enough support for the IUD, the, this conservative view on the device prevailed in the in the government, and consequently, government refused to uh, approve the um, the uh, the device in the 50s. Now, in the 60s, uh, the government uh, kind of view shifted, right? and. <clears throat> And this shift in the, in the uh, shift corresponded with the shift in dynamics with the doctors acting as science, scientific policy advisors. Now, the shift was partly brought about by the transnational uh, population control movement that gave a global boon to the IUD. But I also emphasize that the transnational trend was far from something foreign that was coerced upon uh, the domestic policy process, but it was a constitutive element in it. <coughs> So the, the few doctors who uh, the international audience deemed represented Japanese um, obstetric gynecology were active and reputed participants of the transnational movement. And their ideas engagement in the world politics of reproduction eventually shifted uh, politics of the IUD that prevailed within the domestic policymaking domain. So the, the change in the policy in 1974 was as a result of the doctor's effort uh, to embed the transnational trend in the domestic policy. Thank you for listening.